0: Again, turn with me to Philippians and your Bible um two twelve through eighteen. It's in your pew Bible, uh page eleven sixty five. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now
1: So, how is your albedo? You see, I want to talk today about the albedo problem that we have as Christians. I see some of you are giving me kind of a blank stare there. Maybe you're in denial about your albedo problem. You know, maybe it's just not comfortable. It's not something that you want to talk about. You don't want to talk about the albedo problem. But church, we need to talk about our albedo problem. As you, of course, know, albedo is the measurement of how much sunlight a planet or other celestial body reflects. But you already knew that. So, for example, our moon has an albedo of 0.07, meaning that 7% of all sunlight that hits the moon is reflected to us. But Venus actually has the highest albedo of the heavenly bodies, 0.65. 65% 65 of all light that hits Venus is reflected to us. But the question today is, how's your albedo? Yeah, now it makes a little bit more sense. <laughs> as Candy just read for us, Paul wrote that we are to shine as lights. Shine as lights that are contrasted against the backdrop of an ever-darkening world. Oh, look, I had a picture of the moon and I totally forgot it was there. We are supposed to shine as lights against the backdrop of an ever-darkening world. You see, the problem with that is that you and I don't have any light. In and of ourselves, we don't have any light. So how are we to shine? Again, how is your albedo? Your spiritual albedo might be defined as the measurement of how much of the light of Christ reflects off of you and is seen by the world. How much of him shines off of you into the world? How is your albedo? Because church, we are called to shine. Now last week we began discussing this passage that Candy read for us, and what I thought was going to take us just one week, last week ended up really needing two weeks, and so we're continuing to talk about it, because this section is just too important for us to rush over. Because what we have here, what we're talking about in this passage is the very substance of the Christian life. It's the very stuff of us being disciples who make disciples. The very stuff of being followers of Jesus Christ in this world. And we find that those who follow Jesus are to be those who shine, who reflect him to the world. Now, just a quick remembrance of last week. We discussed last week, really, mostly verses 12 and 13, where if you look in your text, 12 and 13 is where Paul commands us. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. Work out your salvation. Your salvation with fear and trembling. And we talked about the fact that we cannot work for, we cannot work in, and we cannot work up our own salvation. Because salvation is by grace alone. It is a gift given to us. This is the gospel. This is the good news. The good news is that we can be saved from the penalty and the power of sin, not by our works, not by what we've done, but by what Christ has done on our behalf. It's what we actually just sang a few minutes ago. We sang, not the labors of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Should my passion never fade or, and all my efforts, be, and my efforts all be weighed, all for sin could not atone. You must save, and you alone. You see, the labors of my hands, everything that I do, it's still never going to be good enough. Even if my passion never faded and I gave all that I could for as long as I could, I still fall short. I can't do enough to tip the scales in my favor. I can't do enough good to outweigh the bad that I've done or the good things that I left undone. And I cannot do and I cannot undo all the wrong things that I've done. And as such, like the song says, my efforts cannot atone. You know, that word atone is from Middle English, and it literally comes from at one at one. I am powerless to make myself at one with God again. I am powerless to end the separation that my sin has wrought. I am incapable of reconciling the offense and the damage that my sin has caused. So if there's going to be salvation, as the hymn writer concludes, you, God, must save. And you alone. And friends, this is the gospel. This is the good news. The good news is that God has saved He has made a way. God has done what you and I were powerless to do by sending Jesus Christ. Jesus died on the cross. He bore the penalty for our sins that it might no longer they might no longer separate us from God. And on the third day, he rose victorious over death and rising to a new life. He made it possible that we, too, might live a new life freed from the power of sin. We can be saved from the penalty and from the power of sin. And the gospel, the good news is that in Christ, God alone has saved us. And friends, if you're here today, if you're here today and you've not accepted that salvation, if you're here today and you're still trying to religiously earn God's favor, if you're still laboring hard for your own pardon, if you're still under your own power trying to fulfill the law's impossible demands, then today, today hear and believe and receive this good news. God has saved. He alone has done what we cannot do. So trust in Christ. Receive His salvation. And be freed from the penalty and from the power of sin. And if you want to receive this salvation, I hope you'll talk to me at the end of the service, or our prayer team will be up front here, and they would love to talk to you and to pray with you. Or speak to the person who brought you here today, because I'm sure they too would love to share with you this good news of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done. Because the gospel, the good news, is that God has sent Jesus to save us and free us from sin's penalty and its power. For as that song also says, be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. Jesus came to save us from sin's penalty and from sin's power to purify us. Salvation is not just something that has happened but it's something that will happen, and it's something that is today happening. So as we discussed last week, and just briefly to review, salvation has past, present, and future. Our salvation has past, present, and future. In the past, when we trusted in Jesus that first time, we were, five-syllable word, there was our justification. It's a forensic term. We were declared not guilty, and it happened immediately. When we trust in Jesus, we are immediately declared not guilty, the penalty of sin is removed from us. And then one day, one day in the future, we have another five-syllable word, our glorification. Jesus will return. He'll make us perfect. One day we will have complete and final victory over sin and struggle and temptation and weakness and sadness and sin. It will be all no more. And that will be ultimate. It'll be perfect. It'll be complete. We will never again struggle. There'll be no more tears falling from eyes. There'll be no more sorrow and sadness, for it will all be made new. However, you and I don't live in the past, and we don't live in the future. We live in the present. And right now in the present, our salvation is worked out today in our daily lives. And like we talked about last week, that's the word sanctification. It doesn't come immediately like justification. You're immediately justified. It doesn't come completely like glorification. You're completely, perfectly glorified. It's progressive. Sanctification grows. You and I in our daily life today, more and more we work out the salvation that God has worked in by grace. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out what God has worked in. That's sanctification. It comes over the course of our whole life. We can't work for our salvation. We can't work it in. We can't work up to it. But we can work out what grace has worked in. We can live the reality that Christ has put inside us. We can live that salvation today following Jesus in the present. And that's what Paul is talking about when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's writing about our sanctification, following Jesus right now. And if we're progressively being sanctified, then what Paul says today is you should progressively be reflecting Jesus better and better. If you're becoming more and more like him, if that salvation is being worked out more and more and more with each coming day and in each coming situation, then you should increasingly shine like a light contrasted against a dark world. Paul, and Paul, you know, Paul asks, what does it look like to follow Jesus Shine. We're called to shine. And look at verses 14, um, uh, starting in verse 14 there in your text. he, He commands us, do all things without grumbling and disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. You see, God's people have always been meant to follow him and reflect him to the world. The problem is, God's people don't have a good history of doing that. And in fact, what Paul is referring to in these first verses that I just read, when the people in Philippi heard them, they would have thought of Israel in the wilderness wanderings. Because if you remember, God saved his people from slavery in Egypt. He delivered them. Remember the ten plagues, the parting of the Red Sea. And you'd think that God's people would have been really grateful for that. You saw the ten plagues. You saw the sea open and you walked right through the middle. God is leading you through the desert by a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. He's providing bread in the middle of the desert. He's providing uh, uh, ravens and and, uh, birds to quail to come so that you have meat to eat. You think they'd be thankful. You think that they would have followed with thankfulness and willingness, but it says no. The entire time they were in the desert. They grumbled and they complained and they disputed so much. So in the book of Numbers, chapter 14, verse 27, we hear the Lord's ask, how long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I've heard the grumblings of this people, Israel, which they grumble against me three times in one verse. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Kind of sounds like us, doesn't it? At least I know it sounds like me. Because, you know, you can ask my wife. I'm the master of doing the right thing with the wrong attitude. You know, yeah, I'll follow through. I'll do what I should, but I'm going to grumble the whole time. And if I'm not verbally grumbling and disputing, then my attitude sure speaks loudly for me. The problem is that when you or I do the right thing, but we do it with the wrong attitude, with grumbling and disputing. What does that say to other people? How does that speak to them? You know, what, what does that say about the worthiness of the individual or the idea that we're following? Because when we deem an individual or an ideal, ideal as worthy of following, we don't grumble or dispute. We follow wherever and however we're led. You know, it's like the, the hymn, He leadeth me declares, Lord, I would clasp my hand in thine, nor ever murmur, nor reply, content whatever lot I see, since it is thou that leadest me. Since it's you who lead me, and I know you're worthy and you're trustworthy, wherever you lead me and however you lead me, I'm not going to grumble. I'm not going to dispute. I'm just going to clasp my hand in yours, and I'll follow. Church, your attitude. As you follow Jesus, your attitude either grumbles or it glorifies. Either Christ is shown before the world to be worthy and trustworthy, or he is shamefully And grumblingly portrayed to the world. What does your attitude do? In the wilderness, the Israelites, they might have followed the Lord with their feet. But they weren't following with their hearts. And as a result, the glory of the Lord wasn't shining and obvious to the nations around them. The nations didn't see the glory of the Lord reflected in his people. All they heard was their grumbling about him. So what about you? How's your albedo? Does your attitude glorify? Or does it grumble? Paul is using the failure of the Israelites in the wilderness as a warning to the church in Philippi and the church here on Chestnut Street. In fact, just as Paul subtly referred to the Israelites' wilderness wanderings in verse 14, look at verse 15. Look down at verse 15 at your text. Paul is subtly quoting from the Song of Moses. Look at verse 15 as I read to you from Deuteronomy 32. This is Deuteronomy 32, verse 5. They have dealt corruptly with God. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you notice that Paul uses the exact same words in verse 15 as Moses used in Deuteronomy? Paul's warning, don't become like the Israelites during their wilderness wanderings do not become like them. Because the problem was, it started with grumbling, and eventually they wandered away from the Lord, and they became just like the nations around them. They became blemished, and the more blemished they became, the dirtier the mirror, the less light that mirror reflects to the world. And moreover, it says, the Israelites became crooked and twisted like the nations around them. In other words, there was no longer any contrast between God's people And the nations around them, they no longer shone. Church, contrast is necessary if something's going to stand out. For example, could somebody please read for me the message that I just put up on the screen? There are words up there. I promise. So could somebody just read this? You can't read the words because the words have become the same color as the background. Without any contrast, the words, the message, the truth becomes invisible. But when the words are different from the background, the message shines clearly for all to see. And church, if we want the world to know Jesus is Lord, we can't just blend into the background, becoming like the world around us. We have to stand in contrast. We must shine like stars against the contrast of the dark night sky. The problem is, the danger is, We're regularly told to dim our lights. You know, we hear more and more dire warnings that say the church needs to keep in lockstep with the ever-changing beliefs and practices of a society. The church needs to update its biblical teaching on all kinds of issues to remain relevant. Christianity needs to change or die. If Christianity hopes to survive, it needs to look more like the world. But if we do that, what do we have left? Jesus himself warned us, or declared, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You see, what makes salt valuable is its distinctiveness from and contrast to that which is around it. If salt loses its taste and becomes just like everything around it, what good is salt? And in the same way, church, we are tempted... We are tempted not to shine because if we do, it often makes us a target. Because light exposes the darkness for what it is. Light makes the contrast all the more obvious, and it makes the darkness look much less appealing. And frankly, those who prefer the darkness are made uncomfortable by the light. So to shine is to draw attention and probably persecution. I mean, consider the words that actually come immediately before these words. Jesus declares, "Blessed, whoop. oh, there it was. There you go. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For they so they persecuted the prophets who were before you." Jesus says, those who shine the light of Christ, those who are working out their salvation with fear and trembling, they risk persecution, which you might remember is exactly what Paul was warning about in the first chapter of this letter to the Philippians that we studied. And so it's always easier. Church, it's always going to be easier for us to blend in. It's always going to be a temptation to blunt the truth of the message. It's always going to seem more prudent to compromise. It's always going to be tempting for us to dim the light So how's your albedo? Author Clarence Jordan asked, One wonders why Christians today get off so easily. Is it because unchristian Americans are that much better than unchristian Romans? Or is our light so dim that the tormentor can't see it? Has the light of Christ become so dim in his church that it can't be seen anymore by the world? How's your albedo? To shine means that as Jesus' followers, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We increasingly reflect Jesus, shining in contrast to the darkness around. And this process of progressively being sanctified, it's like the process of cleaning a mirror so that the mirror better reflects Jesus. Jesus is removing everything that prevents us from reflecting Him, everything that reduces our albedo, everything that dims His shine, In our lives and in his church. And church, the most important tool that Jesus uses in that process is his word. Look at verse 16. Look at your text there. Paul writes that we shine as lights in the world as we hold fast to the word of life. The phrase has the force of both holding fast and holding out. Hold fast and hold out the word of life. The Word of God purifies us that we might better reflect Christ and shine His light to a darkened world. Paul describes this briefly in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 5. He writes, Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any other such thing that ye might be holy and without blemish. So there's that word again, sanctify. And here again is the idea of cleansing spot or blemish that we might better reflect him. And how does he wash us, it says? With the word. As we hold to and hold forth the word of life, he shines. We increasingly reflect Christ. Friends, the word of God has the authority and the power to change us. We cannot change the word to reflect our desires and our culture. It must change us to reflect Christ's desires and Christ's will. Christ must shine. So how is your albedo? The word must be held onto and held forth as the light, the truth, the authority. Because the word is from Christ, the word points to Christ, and Christ is the word made flesh. Church, if we let go of, if we hide, dim, minimize, or water down the word of life, what do we have left? Sure, the church can meet social needs, but there are secular organizations that do that too, and many of them do it much better than the church does. Uh, Maybe we're just a social organization, but there are plenty of secular social organizations where friendships and social connections can be formed. Maybe we provide spiritual experiences But many people say that walking in nature, sitting in silence, listening to music, they provide a spiritual experience. Church, if we let go of, hide, dim, minimize, or water down the word of life, we have nothing that makes us unique. We've lost our saltiness. We've lost the contrast. We will not shine if we just blend in with the background. So Paul says, hold on and hold out. The word of life. For by it, Christ shines to the word. By that word of life, you are sanctified, progressively washed and purified of your sins. So that you more and more reflect Christ to the world. So that Christ increasingly shines in the darkness. Church, how is your albedo? Paul says in verses 16 through 18, he's poured out his life to this end. He's poured out his life to this end that the church in Philippi might work out their salvation with fear and trembling, progressively shining Christ more and more. In verse 17, he uses this strange sounding image to us of a drink offering. In the Old Testament, a drink offering would be wine that would be poured on the sacrifice as it burned. And the steam of the wine as it vaporized would rise to heaven and it symbolized the sacrificial offering Floating up to God. And Paul says, My life is being poured out like a drink offering on you. Paul is so invested in the salvation and the sanctification of these believers that he says, I'm going to pour myself out just to see that you are a fragrant offering to Christ. To see that your life so reflects Him that the world sees. Paul is more invested in the salvation and sanctification of these believers than he is in his own freedom, in his wealth, in his autonomy, in his reputation. Paul is more invested in seeing Jesus shine, reflected from the lives in the church, than any other thing. It's what Paul talks about, it's what he labors for, it's about which he prays, it's that for which he sacrifices, it's that for which he lives, and ultimately it is that for which Paul will pour out his life. Friends, is this your passion? As well. Because every one of us in this room is pouring out our lives for something. You're pouring out your life for something. You're spending it somehow, on some purpose, on some end. What are you pouring out your life on and for? Paul says, I'm pouring out my life so that Jesus Christ might be reflected in and from the lives of his church. This is disciple-making. This is helping others follow Jesus. This is walking with others that Christ might be progressively reflected in their lives and in the church. That was what Paul gave his life for. Church, what are you going to pour out your life for? Christ shining in the darkness must become his church's purpose and passion, to see him shining in our own lives, to see him reflected in the lives of the church, to see more and more come to faith and begin reflecting his glory. We want to see the word of life held forth. Church, how is your albedo? The table that we're going to come to in a little while. This table is a time for Christ to shine amongst us It's a chance to feast upon His glories and His grace. It's a chance to come together to remember and proclaim. It's a chance that He might polish the mirror of our lives so that He might be better reflected, His glory to this world. It's a time for you and I to come and to ask Christ, Christ, how is my albedo? And then invite Him to do His work so that we might better reflect Him to the darkness of this world. And are you ready to do just that? Let's pray together. Speak, O Lord. Speak to us as we pray. Speak to us as we reflect. Speak to us as we remember and as we celebrate your death and your resurrection. And Father, do your work in us. Do your work through us that you, might shine, that you might be reflected to this world, and that you might be glorified. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.